Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. History is so important to who we are. The past isn't the past. It's still alive. And 2014 certainly was a very big year for race relations in America. The very meaning of racism has been called into question as never before. This Keeping Democracy Alive show with Bert Cohen is being produced on January 15th, which is, of course, the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. What better time to look at the issues surrounding where we are in this wide and often difficult and painful subject? Well, at the age of 77, our guest today, Janet Cheatham-Bell, has a lot of experience, and she is still following her lifelong inclination to explore new opportunities and to take risks. What she lives for is sharing her own thoughts and opinions. This is going to be fun, and that's exactly what she does in her brand new book of essays called Not All Poor People Are Black parentheses, and other things we need to think about. It's a series of short essays about, well, why don't you tell us, Janet? My essays are, some are personal, and some are about my uh, spiritual search, and others are about our working together as uh, people to affect the common good for all of us. Because we, the American people, are the final reservoir of power in this country. And we need to access, we need to first identify that power and then to exercise it and not let our elected officials run off and do whatever they choose. And this book is dedicated to the American people who are the final reservoir of power. Um, for all those, I say it's for all those who want more from themselves and more from their country. And the symbol on the front of the book is the West African Adinkra symbol of unity and human relation that is a reminder to contribute to the community because in unity lies strength. Boy, that is for sure. And a lot of us these days have accepted a sense of powerlessness. It's amazing to me how probably much more than Western Europe, we've just, a lot of us have just given up and and think we don't have the power. And that's exactly what the powers that be want us to feel. Exactly. But that has not always been the case, and it's really not the case now. I, I, I'm very, you know, in agreement that uh, we do have the power if we exercise it. And you have a, a dedication at the beginning of the book. I wonder if you could tell us uh, what that says and and just tell us about that dedication. Well, the book is dedicated to the American people. Um, 
Yeah, and it says, to the American people who are the final, final reservoir of power. For all those who want more from themselves and more from their country. Correct. We can do it. And, and then I use the West African Adinkra symbol of unity and human relation, which is a reminder to contribute to the community that in unity lies strength. No question. There's, I mean, a tremendous amount of money that seems to be uh, largely ruling Washington these days, but they still can't do it no matter how much money they have and, and how powerful certain big corporations are. They got to be voted in or voted out. And, and Exactly. We, th- the power still lies with us, and that's exactly what the founders of this country intended for us, is that you know, the power lies with we, the people. And you've been through a lot. A lot of your experiences are written about in this book, including uh, your father. You start out writing about what you call, quote, the most ridiculous assertion ever uttered. <laughs> and that assertion is too big, too to, big f- to fail. As as you write, by bailing them out, those, as you say, those failed institutions learned nothing. What is it about failure that may be essential to life? Exactly. Exactly. We all fail. Everybody fails at something at one time or another in their life. And from that failure, we learn lessons. We learn what to do and what not to do. And then we move on to try something else, and we may fail again. Uh, But again, we learn something from it, and we become more resourceful as a result of it. But if you don't ever have to have consequences for your failures, then you don't learn anything. You keep repeating the same behavior. And that's exactly what our financial institutions have done because they were bailed out by our tax money. They haven't learned anything, and they are indeed doing exactly the same thing they were doing before they failed. And it's amazing to me how, uh, as we speak, uh, the uh, new Republican majority is trying to roll back even the minimal regulations that were put in under the Dodd-Frank bill. Exactly. Exactly, because... They didn't have to pay any consequences for their failure. And, of course, the people in Congress are being told what to do by (laughs) these banksters. Yes. So, um, and in order to keep the money coming to fund their campaigns, they will do whatever they're asked to do. And failure, as you say, really is essential for people to, to learn from it. It's an opportunity to learn. And I, I just want An opportunity to grow. Yes, it really is. And if we don't experience that failure, uh, and you, I have a little bit of experience uh, being an American citizen, being born relatively recently in 1950, you have a little more experience. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it seems to me that Americans' recent current expectation of what you call instant solutions to every challenge, it, it seems relatively new to me. As you write, we demand not to be inconvenienced. Talk about exactly. that. Exactly. Talk about That's that. amazing. Absolutely amazing. It, 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 tell us what you mean about that. What what we demand not to be inconvenienced. What was the effect of that on individuals and on the American society? Well, I have watched as 
um, for example, when the when the oil spilled in the Gulf, right, um, which was a major disaster Huge. for which the oil companies were responsible, not the American government, except of course the American government had allowed them to drill in the Gulf, but people were furious because. The government, the president, didn't do something about it immediately as if he could personally go down and clean up all that oil <laughs> and put things back to the way they were. Yes. And I, I blame some of this on the media because they always, because they want attention, because they want viewers, they stir the pot. Mm. Where's the president? Why hasn't he been down here? Um, when the economy is dragging. Why doesn't the president do something when the oil barons decide to raise the price of oil? Why didn't the president stop them from doing that? It's just, it's incredible to me. But that also indicates that we expect our government to resolve all problems without any responsibility on our own part. For example, right now, Congress has a 14% approval rating, hmm. but a 93% uh, <laughs> voting the incumbents back into power. Yes. Does that make sense? <laughs> Not at all. And yet it, it keeps on happening. And people don't want to think about it and you know, it just, it seems to me, as you mentioned, that the media, the, the, the power of the, the advertisers on the mainstream media, instant solutions. It's got to be fixed right now. And exactly. you have a little experience, more than I do, and it, it life just doesn't happen like that. Things It doesn't work that way. It absolutely does not work that way. And, and what do you think and about people who, you know, who expect instant solutions, and they want, we just want instant gratification right now. What does that do to, to our community and to America? Well, first of all, it keeps us disgruntled all the time <laughs> because nothing can be fixed instantly. And then you have that, that uh, one blazing example of it is the sports industry where you have this constant rotation of coaches because... They didn't bring us a championship in two years. Hmm. You know, it's just it's just so outrageous. Um, and, and I find, you know, mentioning uh, mainstream media and TV, it used to be, you know, in the 50s and 60s, shows wouldn't be smash hits right away. They'd have to play for a couple years or so, and then they became really, really big and tremendously popular. Nowadays, if a show doesn't have a hit, like instantly, bam, it's gone. Yeah. It's gone. And some what we think of as classics these days didn't start out as, as monster hits. And so it affects the artistic community as well, not for the better. We're Absolutely not for the better. We're talking today on Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen to author Janet Cheatham-Bell. Her brand new book is called Not All Poor People Are Black and Other Things We Need to Think more about. And you have the word think in a different font than the rest of the sentence. And as an African-American growing up in the 1940s and 50s, I can't help but think that you may have had some personal experience 
with racism. And you say that, (laughs) (laughs) am I right, that that racist epithets no longer bother you. How do you respond when people say racist things in your presence? Do you think white allies should respond to racist talk differently than should black people? And how does well, uh, I now understand that people who have the desire and the need to spew that kind of venom have to be really unhappy themselves. They have to have had some life that encouraged them to view the world with fear and loathing. So these are not people that can be any can have any importance in my life because I don't feel that way, I don't think that way, and I will not allow them to disturb my peace of mind because I know that they have issues and problems that I can't help them with, so there's no point in allowing them to disturb me. Um, Mm. For a long time, uh, we blacks thought of whites as being so powerful that anything they did affected us, especially if it was aimed at us. And at one time, when um, racist acts could be performed with impunity, Mm -hmm. when they had the tacit approval of the government and the police force and the powers in the community, it was more significant when... Uh, that venom was aimed at you. But at least now, it's no longer legally acceptable. So there's no reason, I don't think, and it's certainly I'm not going to be affected by some random white person calling me a name. I mean, mm-hmm. what does that mean? It says more about the person than it does about me. Um, yeah. So no, I, I can't be impacted by that. When leading officials like some of the disrespect that's been aimed at our first black president yes. by elected officials, by powerful people, and, and, and especially by elected officials in the Congress of the United States of America. I mean, that just is unfathomable. Uh, I do think that other whites who don't agree with that should speak out against it. Because, as my son says in his act, uh, have some white pride. Don't allow that venomous person to represent your people. And they always ask blacks to speak out and condemn anything that a black person does that is considered unacceptable. I remember Farrakhan doesn't get as much attention now, but in the past when he would say, things that whites considered unacceptable, they would go around to Jesse Jackson and any other black leaders and ask them to condemn Farrakhan. But they never do that with whites, the media. And I'm talking about the media. Oh, here. interesting. They never do that with whites. When, when members of Congress say hateful things about the president, nobody asks Boehner or, or any of the other congressional leaders to condemn that person. They just let it slide. Interesting. You raise very good and and rather troubling points there that how much energy we uh, white people uh, spend avoiding 
avoiding pointing out racism. We're, it's like we're, we're afraid to do it. And, you know, Lord knows that this president has gotten more disrespect and has had to deal with more, uh, I could use lots of words, uh, garbage, shall we say, difficulties than any president. And white people have been, I think, perhaps afraid to say, hey, you know what? Would you be saying this if he weren't an African-American? So people, exactly. people, people are, you know, white people are, are somehow afraid to do that. And that, it seems to me that kind of reinforces racism, unfortunately. It absolutely does. And they expect us to speak out. Right. And, uh, but it's, it's almost like the racism in this country is not their responsibility. It's only our responsibility. Mm. Wow. And when, in fact, if, if our, quote, founding fathers, the people who put this country together, had not made race an integral part of our history, an integral part of our development, then it would never have been an issue. And these were our white founding fathers that we revere so much, but we never talk about that either. Yeah. I'll tell you, when I grew up in the 50s, uh, I uh, I used to see, you know, the, the overt racism on TV, the, the, the dogs and the fire hoses. And I remember thinking, oh, man, those people down south, that's weird. That's really an aberration. I was so naive. I had I, I thought racism was limited to those few bizarre people down south, not up here in New England. I <laughs> I, I, yeah, I know. You I, learned better, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I wish I hadn't. But I, that was also the image that was being promulgated at that time, was that that's the South. Yeah. That kind of thing does not happen in the North. It had always happened in the North. Uh, it was just more subtle. In the South, they were very overt about it, and yeah. very vocal about it. In the North, it was just more subtle. But, but it was has always been there, and it's it's really true that uh, you know this uh, economic system is is frankly largely based on that and exploiting other people normally of color, and it's just the way it, it has been. And and you talk about naive myself here <laughs> when when our president Barack Obama was elected, and I'm proud to say I voted for him twice. Uh, when he was first elected, I was naive enough to expect that this would mean a real reduction in racism. This was a big step. <laughs> how, how do you think his Barack Obama's election actually affected racism in America? Obviously, it's a lot well, less. You, you know what? This is what I believe. One of the things that I have observed in all my years of life and and from reading history, race has always been used as a tool by the powers, by the people in power, to divide and conquer. I believe that it was the most convenient tool in their arsenal that has worked so effectively throughout the history of this country that they encouraged the unleashing of it in order to make sure that Obama's presidency was a failure. 
I think that was their purpose. Yes. Because all of a sudden we had this quote-unquote grassroots movement called the Tea Party, Mm -hmm. which was overtly racist in many of their acts. Oh, no doubt. And all of a sudden we had people going to town hall meetings where the president was going to be present carrying guns. And where did people get all these ideas all of a sudden? They, I don't believe they had been sitting around planning that if a black man is elected, this is how we're going to respond to it. I think it was one of the what the power people in power knew that there are some people who be affronted by the fact that there's a black man in the White House. Oh, yes. And if they haven't consciously thought about that, let's bring it to the forefront and let's keep them stirred up and maybe and and you know the 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 head of um the major, the minority leader in the Senate said that his task was to make Obama's presidency be one term. Yep. Absolutely amazing. The disrespect. This is one of our top leaders in the country yep. and I who be- said that. So he wasn't interested in what was best for the country. No. He wasn't interested in our common good. He was only interested in making the president of the United States fail. That's unbelievable. And I don't believe they would have done that had he not been an African-American. And I find it's been so interesting how the word and the understanding of racism has been changed so much since uh, Barack Obama became president that uh, people, you know, if if somebody says, oh, you're you're only dissing the president because he's an African-American, if somebody says that, they'll accuse that person of being racist. I, yeah. it's, it's amazing to me. People have said that uh, uh, people like uh, the Reverend uh, Al Sharpton, because he points out racism, is a racist. Yeah. That's an amazing twist of logic. Well, they twist logic quite a bit. Uh, you know, they, they say you know, we're going to create jobs, but they what they mean. When, yeah. It's amazing to me how they call things by the opposite of what they actually do. Uh, you know, like, what do they call the their opposition to the environment? It's something like clean air or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, they, they give it the name. Blue skies or something like that. Yeah, they give it a name that's the opposite of what they in, their intentions are. And the thing of it is, is that people fasten on to their sound bites and re- and repeat them and repeat them, and they start to believe that that's mm-hmm. that's the reality. I mean, otherwise, how could you get an abomination like a fourteen percent approval rating <laughs> and then return ninety three percent of the people to their jobs? Uh, I know it is. It's pretty amazing. And part of that is because a lot of people don't bother to vote. That is true. And we talked about that in the beginning, uh, uh, Janet Cheatham-Bell, about people believing they're powerless. I, You yes. know, we we the people made some changes in the 50s and 60s with regard yes, to civil rights. Absolutely made an impact. 
We affected the war in Vietnam. We brought yes. it. We brought it to an end. Uh, people who are opposed to nuclear power have, you know, basically stalled that and and are starting to roll that back. And now they're calling. But but we do have the power. We actually do have the power. And it disturbs me greatly that people accept that we don't have the power. Uh, if you just tuned in. To Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen, our guest today is Janet Cheatham-Bell. Her brand-new book is Not All Poor People Are Black, among other things we need to think about. It's a collection of essays from all different subjects, many personal, many uh, less personal. And I, I just wanted to—you were reminding me about the powers that be, the people in the real power— use racism to divide people one from the other. There was that movie a long time ago, Richard Pryor's movie, Blue Collar, talked about dividing blue-collar people, having white working people fight against black working people, while the top 1% just laughs all the way. They're not affected. And And, And people keep going for it. They keep buying into it. Yeah, I guess uh-huh. it's I guess it's easier than going after who's really making the difficulty. It's less trouble than taking responsibility. Uh, and people these days are so into not taking responsibility, you know, just just pointing to other people. And as you write, standing aside to criticize and assign blame is to avoid loving and caring for yourself. And others. That's a very interesting quote in your book. Why is this important? Standing aside, as you say, standing aside to criticize and assign blame is to avoid loving and caring for yourself and others. Say more about that, please. Well, we live in community. We we don't live in isolation. We're not individual hermits with our own tiny little worlds. We no man is an island. Yeah. We live in community. Yes. And because you live in community, well, for example, if you live in a family of six people, you can't sit on your rump and allow the other five people to take care of everything while you don't contribute anything. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true for the country. You can't just sit back and criticize, and especially you can't criticize if you're not voting, No, sure. and, and blame everybody else for what's going on. I truly believe uh, what Obama's theme was when he, when he ran the first time. Mm-hmm. We are the change we want to see. And if you're not contributing in some way to making things better, then you're part of the problem. That's what we used to say back in the 60s. If you're not part of the solution, right. you're part of the problem. And people so. And I believe that. And, and the first way in which anybody can be a part of the solution is to stop complaining. (laughs) That's point number one, to stop complaining, because complaining does not resolve anything. Yeah, it it, it keeps it in place. And a lot of people these days, you know, they say they don't vote. Well, they're all the same. I'm just not going to vote. That is so wrong. Oh, my God, that is so wrong. And once yeah. they're in there, they can be affected. Hearing from a lot of people, it actually makes a difference. Letters to our members of Congress. You and I grew up expecting that that was something that we just did as citizens. And these days, people just throw in the towel and give up. And what does that do to the real power? Keeps it laughing all the way. And Exactly. 
You you write exactly. th- there's a lot that you write about fascinating stuff in this book. Not all poor people are black. You write that you left Indiana in 1964. When you left, you felt like Frederick Douglass in 1838 when he escaped slavery. That sounds like an interesting story. Tell us about that. Well, Frederick Douglass is definitely one of my heroes. I have read everything that man wrote, and I just admire him so much. When you think about a person who was enslaved, his body didn't even belong to him, but still he had a dignity and a confidence in who he was so that, well, the first magnificent thing that I read about that he did that really cemented him in in my pantheon of heroes was that he would not allow himself to be whipped or beaten by a slave breaker. Mm. His owner sent him to this man who breaks slaves, in other words, breaks their spirit, Mm. so that they become more docile. And he wanted to beat Frederick Douglass into submission. And he wouldn't Douglas wouldn't allow it. He would not allow it. And I was like, yes. So when I decided I was going to take my life into my own hands, I felt like I was freeing myself. Hmm. Of course, my chains weren't actual, but they were mental. Because up until that point in my life, I had only done the things that my parents wanted me to do or that a husband wanted me to do. And at that point, and I was an adult, but I hadn't yet taken charge of my own life. So when I decided to leave home against everybody's advice, Mm. and and I felt like I was freeing myself. And and did you go from a place, Indiana, where there was... Uh, perhaps the racism, the overt racism was worse to some place where it was less bad? Was that part of your plan, and did it work that way? <laughs> no, I was so naive that I didn't um, think that there could possibly be another place as racist as Indiana. <sighs> <laughs> and especially if I went north of Indiana. So I moved to Michigan uh-huh. that I thought would be so much better. And, uh, boy, did I get a rude awakening. <sighs> and and now, at this point in my life, I've lived all over the country. And what I know now is that anywhere you go in the United States of America, you will find racism. Boy. Anywhere. Yeah. Call it north, south, east, or west. You will find racism because it's an integral part of our history. Written into our Constitution. Yes. I just, Although we have amended it away, but it was written into our Constitution. Well, laws have changed, but attitudes are a little bit slower to change. Yes, and, they are. And, and certainly we you know, witnessed this in, in 2014 with those uh, uh, police killings of, uh, of uh, two people. And then, you know, it was the whole Trayvon Martin thing and just how the police have gotten away with it. It just... And well, that, you know, this, 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 that's not new. What is new is that the social media and instant communication lets us know about each one as it happens. But this has been going on throughout our history. Uh, 
since blacks were freed from slavery and were no longer of value <laughs> to uh, important people, mm. uh, then Just... they became discardable. Yikes. In the South, uh, they uh, would lock you up for being on the street, right. period. Right. And sometimes you might be killed, but you would definitely go to jail and be put in chains and, and put to work as if you were enslaved again. Yes. Um, Slavery by another name. Excuse me? Slavery by another name. Very good book about that. Exactly. So this is not new. And blacks have been outraged about this forever. Yeah. What is new is that now the outrage has spread outside the black community and others who are outraged as well. Yes. And that is very encouraging to me. Yeah, it is. Because if we can get the whole country outraged at this, perhaps there will be some changes. Um, But we, again, it's up to us. It's up to us, because the police are there to do the bidding of those in power. That's their job. Just like in New York City, when those in power, like the mayor of the city, decided, you know what? Let's start stopping and frisking all black and brown people. That's what the police started doing. And even though that policy is allegedly no longer in place, apparently uh, it's still being done. Otherwise, Eric Garner might still be alive. Yeah, I know. And Michael Brown, you know, that thing where where the, the officer who did the killing said he was coming at him, quote, like a demon. Would he say no. it was like a demon if it were a white person? Give me no. a break. Oh, my goodness. It's just, and I, I've and talked. See, and that's what we call internal systemic racism. Hmm. Black men have been so demonized in this country as criminals and, mm-hmm. and, and, and symbols of violence that it's, he, felt perfectly justified in making a statement like that publicly and openly. Yeah. Well, hopefully... And and when you can uh, call the President of the United States, who is a black man, almost every name in the book, probably including Demon, I mean, there have been pictures of him with Satan's horns coming out of his head. Yeah, and Hitler's mustache. Give me a break. Then, Then, you know, why not shoot down a young black man? I mean, if the president is not to be respected, why in the world would you give respect to a young black man walking down the street? Wow, that's quite a perspective. My goodness. And I've I've talked to, you know, black friends of mine, you know, about the, the police stuff. And he said, yeah, so it's been going. It's always been like that. Yeah. But but luckily, we through the, uh, you know, the, this Internet media stuff with which I'm not fully familiar when people, you know, people are getting it. So maybe there's some, dare I say, hope from that. Again, And also yeah. the uh, younger people are have a completely different mindset because they grew up in a completely different kind of country than uh, I did or mm-hmm, you did. Mm-hmm. And so... And they have more interaction with blacks and people, not only blacks, but other ethnic groups as well. And they've become friends, and they know each other, yes. and they're not buying this uh, legacy of racism. They're just 
not all of them, of course. Some of them are some of them are being trained into becoming adult racists, but not all of them are. Yeah, That's and they, choice. you know, they communicate via Twitter and Instagram and all of that that, that stuff that I don't know anything about either. Yeah, but. Um, it's it's happening. It is happening. And I got to yeah. ask, I, I should have asked this before, the title of your book, Not All Poor People Are Black. How did you come up with that? Well, I have been thinking about that for a long time. I may have read it somewhere one time, but not all black people are poor and not all poor people are black. And so I, I wrote an essay about that, and then I decided that that would make a good title for the book. Because our media has been so successful in painting the face of poverty black uh. that everybody just sort of assumes that. They don't even think about it. It's just like it's a truism, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we all get caught up in that and, and just sort of take it in like breathing the air. Hmm. And and um and when i read that you know for the first time in history that the number of whites in poverty were surpassed by the number of hispanics and i thought oh my god it just hit me between the eyes like that's right the majority of poor people are not black they're white and yet you know we've been so bombarded with this you know the face of the welfare system is black. Right. The face of poverty is black. The face of crime is black. Right. Because that's how it's presented. And when it, that kind of image is repeated over and over and over again, you just start to accept it as the truth. And I thought, we need to stop just accepting these myths and start thinking about them and, and questioning them. Yeah. That, again, that's taking responsibility for your community and not just, you know, rolling along with whatever is said and done. I need to get your reaction. Somebody, I sent out advance notice of this show on Facebook, and, and a friend wrote in his comment, I wonder if you would please uh, respond to this. He said, the majority of poor people are white, but the majority of black people are poor, which is not true for whites. It is the disproportionate aspect of the black folks' life conditions that should cause alarm as it speaks to the existence of a race bias operating and contributing both directly and indirectly into who find themsel- finds themselves in the underclass. It's, it sounds like he gets it. Yeah. And- yeah, the, the, that fact that the percentage of poor blacks is higher than the percentage of poor whites is is a direct result of our history and legacy in this country. It's a direct result, not only of our ancestors having been enslaved, but also of the racist policies and procedures that came after slavery was was abolished that prevented blacks from moving up in American society the way other people are allowed to. Yeah, it just is there. And and here's the thing that I find so offensive about people who don't want to talk about racism and don't want to talk about these policies 
that were put in place for the specific reason of keeping black people down is that they said that happened a long time ago. It has nothing to do with now. That's simply mm. not true. That's not... When we, when we see people, families, with, quote, old money, we don't say, you don't deserve that money because your family got that money through, you know, yeah, uh, stuff in there. perhaps not unsavory way. Or a long so time you ago. you don't deserve that money. Nobody ever says that. But a lot of those families with old money got it from the slave trade. Yeah. And we don't mind them still continuing to build on that money that they got during the slave trade, but they don't want to acknowledge the legacy of the slave trade on the people who were enslaved. Hmm. And that, to me, seems patently unfair. But, of course, that's not the only unfair thing. Well, one of the things you write about among many different subjects, it, it's a real variety of subjects in this book, Not All Poor People Are Black. You write about your father's journey. He escaped the life of a sharecropper in Tennessee for Indianapolis in 1922. Tell us, if you would, a little bit about your father and his journey. My father was, he was my ultimate hero, but he was another man like Frederick Douglass who had his own sense of himself, his own sense of dignity, and would not allow anyone to impede that. And he understood, because he grew up without an education, in those days the sharecropper's children were taken out of school very early so that they could go to work. And so my father never went beyond the fourth grade. Mm. But he was uh, very smart. And he knew how to read and write, which, you know, in the United States of America in 2015, some high school graduates don't know how to read and write. (laughs) And so he was able to, he was literate, and, but it was his spirit and pride that so impressed me. He was a man who understood that he didn't have an education and that he would have to earn a living by his muscles, and he did that. And he didn't complain about it. This was what he had to do to provide for his family, and sometimes he worked two or three jobs. And then when his job was over, he worked as a butcher in a pork packing plant. He took off his work clothes at the job, left them there, came home and cleaned up and put on his suit and tie, and went about helping people in his community and helping to improve conditions in his community because, of course, it was an all-black community, and they didn't even have indoor plumbing. And so my father organized the people in the community and pressured city powers because it was a part of the city, but it was a black neighborhood, so who cared whether or not they had indoor plumbing? So my father organized the people in the community because as long as the people in the community accepted what they got, then nobody was ever going to change anything. But Daddy said, no, this is unacceptable. And he organized them and, and, and pressured the city powers until they got plumbing in the area. Mm. And that was his raison d'etre, yeah. was to help 
those who were less fortunate. And he was a leader, and he was a leader in his church. He was superintendent of the Sunday school at our church for probably 25 years and chairman of the deacon board. And everywhere he went, he made a significant contribution. He, he was a volunteer at the YMCA. He took boys in our neighborhood to the Y on the weekend. Um, and that was where he got his meaning <clears throat> and um, in his life because his jobs didn't provide the kind of intellectual satisfaction that he yeah. wanted. And, and the other thing I remember about Daddy is that he always wanted us to tell him what we had learned in school. Uh, and hmm. and if we ever used a word that he didn't understand, he'd ask us what the meaning was, and the next thing you know, you'd hear Daddy using that word. So um, I'm impressed with people who, like my father, and Frederick Douglass, who start um, with nothing yeah. and make something. And go against and, significant And I know violence. everybody doesn't have those remarkable qualities. Right. But when I see them, I admire them greatly. It's a heck of a role model. And, and yes. W- w- one essay uh, that you, Janet Cheatham Bell, write in this book, Not All Poor People Are Black, is titled, Writing for Myself and Hoping. Tell us about <laughs> uh, tell us about your first book, famous black quotations, and some not so famous. Henry Louis Gates Jr. called you a quote pioneer in doing books of black quotations. Uh, end of quote. Why, why did you self publish it way back in 1986, decades before the current self publishing boom? And what about self publishing? Is that any way part of of what you were talking about and the spirit of black entrepreneurship, you know, taking a hold of it, you know, difficult situation and making something of it. Yes. In the 80s, the major publishers were not interested in books by blacks or about blacks unless you were a celebrity hmm. or, you know, a big political figure or something like that. And, of course, I was neither. <laughs> and so... And there weren't any books of black quotations. I mean, I looked in books in print, and there was, like, uh, books about... There were quotations about Jews. There were quotations about golf. There were quotations about Italians, but nothing about blacks. And so I knew that black people would like something like that. I didn't do any kind of uh, uh, focus group. (laughs) I just knew that they would. So I had been collecting quotations for a while because I really love words. And so a friend of mine said to me, you should publish those. And so after I quit my job, where I I had been working for a publisher, a book publisher, I decided, okay, I'm going to publish uh, a collection of these quotations. And I knew a little something about publishing because I had worked in publishing and and then I researched whatever else I needed to know. And back in those days, there were no... Um, we had computers, but they weren't like the computers we have now. So I had to hire <clears throat> someone to... Um, Enter it. ...set the type and that kind of thing, and then find someone to uh, print it and bind it. So it was an involved process. It cost a lot of money. But the book sold like hotcakes. And I ordered five thousand for the first printing and sold it in less the five thousand in less than six months. 
And over the eight years that I was doing that, I sold over 90,000 copies. Wow. Yeah. And um, so my instinct had been correct. And, of course, once I started selling those books and everybody wanted to (laughs) to do quotation books and the major publishers came to me and asked me, could you do one on, you know, this or that? And so... I got commissioned to do other quotation books, and I licensed my books to Warner Mm, Books, Mm -hmm. and and the rest is history. As they say. (laughs) (laughs) But altogether, I published about nine or ten different books of quotation. And, you know, some of your essays, again, they they vary a lot. Some of them are about spirituality. Yes. In one you write, quote, For me, the discoveries of scientists, physicists in particular— have strengthened my understanding of God. How important is this aspect of your life and perhaps some of the larger African-American community as well? Is, is this something about empowerment, this spirituality? Absolutely. I would not uh, be as comfortable with my life as I am now if not for my spiritual search and what it has contributed to my peace of mind and to my ability to see the bigger picture, to not just focus on, you know, what's immediately in front of me, but to understand that it's all a part of an orderly system. And I do believe that, as Martin Luther King said, um, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Ah, So important. So... That's one of the reasons why I don't um, just sit and complain. It's Mm -hmm. because I think in the bigger picture that everything that happens is so that us humans can learn something and grow and become more evolved and better humans. Yeah, and I was talking to uh, a local minister the other day who was saying something very similar to that, that, uh, that it's an acceptance you know, belief in God, he defines as an acceptance of things moving from dark to light, you know, being a tree, yes. being anything else. And, yeah, it's 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 inspiring. And uh, I know, you know, a lot of the African-American community is uh, pretty, pretty spiritual, and it's it's important for sure. Yes. And uh, <laughs> you, you also talk about uh, something rather not spiritual, but rather earthly, mass transit, something most white folks rarely, if ever, think about. Why is this, mass transit, an important issue in the context of your idea of the common good? And and where do we stand today on this important economic issue? Well, I don't think our stand is is, uh, as good as it should be. Uh, One of the reasons why it's important to me is because I don't own a car. And uh, I haven't owned a car uh, for probably 25 years now. Um, Up until that time, I had always owned a car. It was just understood, you know, once you become an adult and you have a job and you're capable of buying a car, you buy a car. This is America, after all. Mm. As GM goes, so goes the country. (laughs) And um, But as our population grows and as more and more cars are on the road. I mean, it's reached the point where there's a car for every adult in this country. No, it's crazy. 
And, of course, there are those people who have three and four cars, sure. you know, more than the people living in the house. Um, <laughs> and it's just becoming absolutely unsustainable. And also, isn't it the case that economically, people in the cities, uh, you know, in order to get to jobs, there's got to be mass transit. And it, I think another part of that is, you know, this whole uh, voter suppression is about requiring people who want to vote, they have to have IDs. And if they don't have a license, which a lot of people in the inner cities don't have a driver's license, they don't need one. So yeah. I mean, this this really is an important issue. It's a civil rights issue. That's right. Mass transit. Yep. Yes. And it's so often. Um, because owning a car is expensive. Yeah. Insurance, things like that. And to insist that people have a car if they want to have a life is patently undemocratic. Yeah, it really is patently undemocratic. And I got to bring up your son. The New York Times called your son uh, sociopolitical comedian W. Kamau Bell, quote, the most promising new talent in political comedy in many years. Uh, you must have a little bit of pride in him. Are, are you surprised at all by his success? Not at all, because he worked so hard. Uh, um, he's been working at it for, for at least, uh, 15 or 20 years so uh, his success is earned and I am very proud of him and more than that I'm proud of the fact that he takes what he does seriously but he also lightens it up with humor and I got to ask, you know, this this show is being recorded on on Martin Luther King's actual birthday, January 15th. You've seen a lot. (laughs) You have seen a lot. Uh, Do do you think is is racism getting better? Is is the social media? Is it helping? How optimistic are you? Do you think there's been some big setbacks? I've been I've been very disappointed by some of the big setbacks. How do you feel about this, uh, Janet Cheatham? Well, I I like the fact that we that racism is being talked about publicly and frequently because for so many years it was a taboo subject so the fact that it is out in the open and people are actually discussing it is a great step forward as far as I'm concerned because it was you know was something that you sort of whispered about before yeah. if you talked about it at all yeah so I'm very encouraged that it's being talked about, and my son is one of the people who who helps to make that happen because he talks about raising his comedy and his performances, too. And again, his name is W. Kamau Bell, and yes. I, there's this great quote that you have. At this age, I feel like a member of an exclusive club, the gray-haired, wise, curious, enthusiastic, vigorous, long-lived women. And uh, that that's a really nice quote, and it's really got some wisdom in it. The book is Not All Poor People Are Black, among uh, and other things we need to think more about. The author is Janet Cheatham-Bell, and the publisher, oh, I don't have my glasses on, Sabate? Sabiat Publications. Sabiat Publications, yes. Thank you so much. Very, very interesting and uh, timely and uh, a real fun read. Thanks very much, Janet Cheatham-Bell. Thank you for having me. Martin Luther King.
Steve Wonder, Stevie Wonder sings a happy birthday song to Martin Luther King. Thanks very much for listening. You can email me, Bert, at BertCohen.com. That's Bert with a U. Thank you. Have a day.